Good morning, great men and women of God. I'm thankful that you made a choice today to be here with us. I know you braved some weather and some other things. I'm thankful that you're here today. This is a, one of those days as a pastor that I, I want to just share from God's word where I think Jesus is going. And I said last week, we're a church that says, where is Jesus going? Let's go there too. And I've always loved that about us as a church. I think we, we do that. And so today's a day to kind of share a little bit, where is Jesus going? And I'll begin that with a story of two women, Jules Woodson and Megan Gans. Jules was sexually assaulted by her youth pastor, Andy Savage, when she was 17 in his youth group. He was 22. Megan was harassed for years by Dan Harmon, creator of the television show Community, where she was a writer. Both women's stories faced men in power preying upon them. Both women found themselves victims simply because they showed up for church and they showed up for work. But their stories diverge here. Jules told her story 20 years ago to Andy's boss, another pastor, who replied to her, quote, so you participated willingly, right? Unquote. Andy was given a going away party as he pursued God's call in another church. The church was led to believe nothing more than an innocent kiss had taken place. Now, last month, when the story became public, Andy stood before his church and he confessed to a consensual sexual incident. Later in an interview, he clarified that it was a, quote, mutual organic moment, end quote, demonstrating his complete and profound lack of awareness of how he abused his authority as a pastor to a teenage student in his youth group. His church gave him a standing ovation. Meanwhile, Megan's abuser, Dan Harmon, went public. He referred to his harassment of Megan as, quote, creepy, cruel, and abuse of my position, quote. He apologized to her, and he said, I want you to call the shots in this. I want you to determine what is just in this. He went on to say this, quote, I lied to myself the entire time about it. I betrayed our audience. I destroyed everything, and I damaged her internal compass, end quote. Megan replied publicly to his comments, and she said this, Please, everyone, listen to what he said. It is a master class in how to apologize. Christ followers, I have a question. How can a man who claims no allegiance to Christ have a stronger grasp on responding to sexual harm than a man who leads a church? Is this why people don't trust the church? Is this a reason why sexual predators feel so emboldened? Is this a reason why so many women don't step forward and tell their stories? Sometimes there are moments where their culture is saying something and calling out to the church to respond. What will we do? Hashtag Me Too has become the hashtag for a reckoning. The dark ways that women have been treated in our world for so, so long are coming to the light. And sadly, as the people call to God's heart for justice, as the people who say, we follow Jesus, who quoted Isaiah 61 and said, this is why I'm here, we should be leading the way in these conversations. And yet we're playing catch up. 
This morning we're continuing our series called Her, and we're looking at some of the ways as Christ followers that we talk about and treat women. And I'd like to consider this question with you this morning, and it's this. How can our church follow Jesus into responding to the realities of sexual harm against women? That's our question. What do we do? Now, I want to acknowledge two caveats here right at the beginning. I acknowledge the realities of sexual harm against men. I'm not going to talk about that today. But I acknowledge that that is true and real and painful and evil. I also want to acknowledge the challenge of talking on this topic as a man. Here's an example of the minefield that I'm in. One woman told me, make sure you don't use the term, quote, sexual violence, because that might deter some people from recognizing what happened to them. I said, oh, okay. So I was talking with another woman. I said that, and she said, oh, make sure you use the phrase sexual violence, because if naming it is an important step in healing. So I will just say uh, I need some grace, as I undoubtedly am going to fail at getting some of this right. But I'd like to begin with two passages of Scripture that frame this issue. And these are core to the way that we understand what it means to follow Christ. Here's the first one. We saw it last week. Genesis 1. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and, fail, male and female, he created them. So men and women, as we said last week, are called to equally steward the world as image bearers of God. Eve was not a carbon copy of Adam. She was the other half of the image of the divine. If that's true, then that means all abuse and assault against women distorts the image of God. I'll say it this way. Violence against her is violence against God. Period. Violence against her is violence against us. Period. So we take that truth about the, the, the image of God and we jump to the New Testament. We hear Jesus say this when he said, let me just summarize for you everything that I want from you. I'm giving you a new command, and it's this. Three words. Say it with me. Love one another. Well, how do we do that? Oh, let me explain. Just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus boils down the life of faith to three simple words, love one another. This is how we carry out the great commandment, to love God and love others, to do this. Because you can love people without loving God, but it is impossible to love God without loving other people according to Jesus Christ. And so what this means is how we treat other image bearers is the single most defining characteristic of disciples. It's not our morals. It's not our political stances. It's not our theological positions. The question is very, very simple. How did we treat other image bearers? Now, if we're going to take these two passages and combine them in that question we're looking at today, I'll say this. How the church responds to sexual harm against women is a key definer of our following of Jesus. And we have a long way to go. How many of you know the name Rachel Denhollander? She's been in the news recently as the first woman to publicly accuse USA Gymnastics team doctor Larry Nasser of sexual abuse. She was the first of 150 or so. Now, the good news is Rachel's a Christian, so she had a church to turn to in this desperate and help-needing time. But the bad news is, when she went to her church, this is what she found. Quote, 
Biblical teachings about grace and repentance were being weaponized against victims, pressuring them into offering an easy forgiveness to their abusers. At the same time, churches lacked accountability structures that treated victims with compassion and respect. She went on to say this, It is with deep regret that I say the church is one of the worst places to go for help. I didn't say that. How can we become a place of help then? How can we become that place? How can we erase this statement so it does not exist anymore, so that no one would ever say that is true? What does loving one another, as Christ called us to do, demand in this situation? And as I've been working on this and praying on this for months, I, 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 I want to begin a conversation today. This is not a fix-everything conversation, but there are five things that I think Jesus is saying to us that we need to be that kind of church. And I'd like to share those with you. Here's the first. We must talk about sexual harm. One of our members was talking with somebody who heard about our focus last fall about the Exodus Road that we heard about earlier and how we were helping girls uh, be rescued from slavery. They were talking about this, and this girl, who's a Christian, said this, why would I want to come to your church and hear about human trafficking? Why would I want to come to your church and hear about that? That is a great question. Why indeed would we want to talk about that? You could just easily talk about puppies and rainbows and Jesus and snuggles and, and be great and not acknowledge the reality and the pain of this world. It's much nicer. What happens when we don't talk about it? One woman addresses the church's silence about the mistreatment of her and other women, and she wrote this poem, and she just said this, that silence says this, I don't believe that happens in my country. I don't believe that happens in churches. I don't believe that happens in my church. She goes on. She says, your silence says, I don't see the outpouring of grief and pain and trauma before me. I don't believe the church has the capacity of offering hope and liberation and comfort in that space of pain. And when your church is silent, what you're saying is you can't bring your pain here. If you can't bring your pain to the church, please tell me, where in the world do you go? When churches don't acknowledge disclosures of sexual assault and harassment, we are furthering the silence that survivors experience. We are reinforcing the message that this is something unacceptable, inappropriate to talk about. Or worse, we're saying, maybe it doesn't really happen. It does. This isn't fake news, guys. According to the Center for Disease Control, one out of every five American women has been raped. Every 98 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted. Every eight minutes, that means it's a child. The CDC also tells us that 44% of American women have experienced some other form of sexual harm, and this means 53 million Americans have been subjected to sexual harassment or assault. But this doesn't include in these facts is that some women are multiple victims. This is not a woman's issue. It is a human issue. So we only talk about it in church if we are all humans. Now, as a pastor, I have dropped the ball many times on this subject. And I want to confess that. Especially in the teaching of the Word of God, I've often skimmed over, edited, or skipped altogether passages in the Bible that talk about sexual assault. Why? I wanted to respect people's sensibilities. I wanted to think about the children. 
I didn't want to bring up uncomfortable topics. I've been in places before, in churches before, where I've, I've said what I thought was the most innocent phrase possible, and someone said, oh, it just didn't make me feel comfortable at church. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was wrong. I am wrong. You know, when you read this book, it does not shy away from speaking about stories of sexual assault, and neither should we. In these pages, there are brutal stories. There are accounts where the community rose up to address and avenge things. There's truth here. We go to Genesis 34. We go to Judges 19. We go to 2 Samuel 13. We go to other places where the Bible says this is what happened and this is what we did. And when we silence those scriptures, we silence real people's stories. Remember, this isn't a book of fairy tales and popcorn. This is a book of history and truth. And there are real people who experience real suffering. And God responded. So we have to be a church that says we're going to talk about tough realities like sexual harm. That's one way we follow Jesus into this. What's another way we follow Jesus in this? We have to change what we must tolerate in how we treat women. We must change what we tolerate in how we treat women. Now I want to say something, and this has been echoed to me many times, and I want to say this because I, I want us to hear truth here too. We have many godly men at Pulpit Rock that honor, empower, and release women, starting with our own elders. One reason I came to this church was I respected deeply our elders' leadership concerning women. We should applaud the many wonderful men that are modeling the love of Jesus. But we have to do more. We can no longer normalize locker room talk. We can no longer say, ah, boys being boys. We can no longer justify pornography. We have to examine it. What we laugh at, what we accept from our leaders, from our politicians, from our sports heroes, from our role models, from our musicians. As a father, I I am whirling around with this question. How am I raising my sons to be followers of Jesus in the ways they speak about, think about, and look at women? Well, I don't even know how to act like a man anymore. Maybe you've heard that the last few months. Maybe you felt that. I, gosh, I don't even know what I'm supposed to say anymore. What are the rules? Can I even do this? What are the rules? What do I look like? Let me give you a suggestion. Dorothy Sayers points us to someone. She writes, perhaps it is no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There had never been another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made jokes about them, never treated them either as, quote, the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them. Who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, who never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. She says, there is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about women's nature. I don't know how to act like a man anymore. Here he is, Jesus Christ. I want to make sure my sons hear that sexual harm is never excusable. I want to make sure my sons hear that sexism Sexual harassment and sexual assault are on a continuum. They're connected. When my kids let sexism go unchallenged, they are creating permission for sexual harassment, which creates fertile ground for sexual assault. I want my sons to know that that is their job to call out their friends 
when they speak out in sexist ways. There's a model of manhood, and, and fathers and, and mothers, you, you're seeing this. There's a model of manhood that's being portrayed through our sons. I, I want to encourage you to take an hour of your life and watch this Netflix documentary. It's called The Mask You Lived In. It is not Christian. I'm going to warn you up front. That means it's not fake and it doesn't hide stuff. <laughs> it's going to be raw and uncompromising. But you ought to watch it and you ought to keep watching it even when the language gets salty. Because what you got to hear is this. This is the soup in which our kids are swimming. It's how we're raising our sons to be a man. And it pierced me to the, my soul how often as a Christ follower I'm looking and I'm raising my kids in some of these same ways. We need to change not just what we tolerate with our sons, but how we talk with our daughters. You know, I grew up in a church that hammered home how women needed to be modest in the ways that they dressed. There was a word that was always used in our church. Women, be careful not to defraud men. Don't defraud men in the way that you dress. We actually had this rule in our church, in our group, it's called the dollar bill rule. And you couldn't have more than a dollar bill's length from the knee to the top. I was always the kid with the dumb questions. I'm like, was that from the bottom of the knee or the top of the knee? Uh, what if people have different size legs? What about the euro? I mean, how do you play with that in other countries? Uh, none of which was appreciated. I'm 47 years old. I have yet to hear a church ever once address how men should dress to not defraud women. What we communicate here, and unintentionally, I get it, and I've preached this, what we communicate here is that it's the woman's responsibility to prevent the man from sinning. He's helpless to resist. The implication we leave with women is maybe they kind of deserved it a little. When Jesus talked about lust, he said something very interesting. If your eye causes you to trip up, pull it out and throw it away. And male pastors for centuries have said, what that means is, ladies, you have to have a dollar bill from the bottom of your skirt to your knee. It's your responsibility, not, not ours. Another confession. When I was a younger pastor, I would often refer to my wife from the pulpit as hot. My hot wife. Oh, my wife, she's so hot. Oh, my wife. And, and I was modeling healthy marriage, right? Every husband ought to refer to his wife in these positive terms. What a, what a great, ma you know, masculine effort I was doing. But what I realize now is I was defining a woman in terms of a man. Not in terms of a God, but in terms of a man. That her prized characteristic was her sexuality. Worse, I'm shaping my young daughter who's sitting in the pew and her views on what, women, what men are going to prize about her. I've actually had some uncomfortable conversations with my wife about this. And she said, I've, I've always appreciated your appreciation of me in that way, but I've always wondered, is there more to me than that? This is why I'm so thankful for our student ministry. Pastor Susie and the team, with grace and unflinching courage, they're going to tackle these issues head on. On February 25th, when they start talking about the talks, I just want you to know the kind of things that you're going to hear, they're going to talk about identity and value and virtue. We have to do this. But we have to do more than talk. The third thing is this. We must listen. And when we listen, we must believe people's stories. Sometimes I wonder, well, why, haven't we, why don't people tell more stories? I mean, if something happened to you, you should say something about it, right? And then I discovered that 75% of harassment victims experience retaliation when they speak up. 
And then I read, read this, that 95% of reported incidents go unpunished. Nothing ever happens. Can you imagine trying to tell your story and experiencing something like this? Here's your tea. Are you feeling a bit better? Not really, no. Okay, well, can you describe the man who mugged you? Um, he was about five foot ten, short, dark hair. He put a knife to my throat and he demanded my phone and my watch. And were you wearing what you're wearing now? Sorry? Is this what you were wearing when it happened? Um, yes, but... You look quite provocatively wealthy. <laughs> look, I, I fail to see how what I wear has any... Well, bit... just a bit of an invitation, isn't it? Like you're advertising it. Look. You seem distressed. I'm going to bring one of our councillors in. This gentleman's a bit upset. He was mugged earlier. Oh, dear. Had you been drinking? Yes, because if you'd had a drink, it can send out confusing signals. Lead somebody on with a nice suit and the phone, and then at the last minute say, I don't want to be mugged. He put a knife to my throat, and he demanded my possessions. I mean... And you just gave them to him. Did you even scream? See, how is somebody to know that you don't enjoy handing over your possessions unless you make your intentions clear? No, I didn't scream. He had a knife. I was really scared. And we're very sympathetic, but I'm afraid you're going to have to accept some of the responsibility for this. Come in. Are you going to be much longer? I've got a gentleman out here who says he's been receiving abusive emails for months. Ask him what font he's been using. If it's something coquettish like Helvetica, then he's probably brought it on himself. Right. Okay. Two things. One, uh, I'm thankful for the subtitles because I don't know what language they were speaking, but that was helpful to me. And the second is we, we laugh because it's uncomfortable because uh, there's no way we would tolerate that, but we do. This is why, what is so revolutionary. This is why what's happening in our culture right now I think is different than what's happened before. In this Me Too movement, the Larry Nassar trial, what, uh, all this stuff, women are being heard and they're being believed in an unprecedented way. It's like the floodgates have opened. And yet how many other Rachel Den Hollanders are sitting on their stories in our churches wondering, will I be heard, will I be believed? But Thomas, come on, what about all these false accusations? I was talking with someone about the, the, how the, it, it's like every day there's a new accusation, right? Every day you're wondering who's, who's going to be hit next. And, and I said, I'm scared that someone might say something about me. I mean, if someone made a false accusation about me, it would be devastating. I, I lose my job. I lose all this stuff. And the person I was talking to said, well, how would that make you feel that that could happen? And I said, it makes me feel vulnerable, like like. Like everything I've worked for, everything I've, I've put effort into, my character, my job, it could all be taken from me in a moment for something I didn't even do or want. The person said, do you think this is the feeling that many women have lived with for, well, forever? In that moment, I tasted some fear of being powerless, and I'll just say this, I don't like that. By the way, false accusations, according to the National Center for the Prosecution of Harm Against Women, 92% to 98% of sexual assault accusations are true. In Luke chapter 4, 
Jesus reads Isaiah 61 and reiterates the reason he came. And he said, I came to, quote, proclaim liberty to the captives, quote. How do we follow him in proclaiming that? We proclaim liberty to someone held captive when we bear witness to their stories and we offer them a safe space. What is a safe space? I think it sounds a little bit like this. A safe space is when you say things like this, I believe you. Thank you for sharing that with me. If you'd like to share more, I would listen. I'm grieved. This grieves God. Now, that's a lot to remember. So what if we just focused on that first phrase for a moment? I'd like you to say this out loud with me. I believe you. Say it out loud. Use your words. Make the words come out of your mouth. At least we've said it in this room once. and It'll be easier to say the next time. I believe you. I believe you might even be a more powerful response than I'm so sorry. And I'll say this to you online and those of you that are here present. If you are being abused emotionally, verbally, sexually, or physically, you are not safe. We can direct you to resources for help. And I will make you this solemn vow. You will never hear a pastor at Pulper Rock counsel someone in an unsafe situation that the Bible tells them to return and submit to that. These last few weeks have been interesting. Um, uh, received some different kind of stuff, negatively, positively. I'll tell you one thing, though, is some women in this church have courageously said, sent me emails and notes that start with, okay, well, I will share, you, share my story with you. And it's been devastating. I'm like, I can't even bear this, and I'm reading it secondhand. How are you living with this? And some of you have had things happen, and you have remained silent or maybe you have spoken up only to be victimized by churches who made excuses, or they concealed sin, or they said something like, well, you're supposed to forgive. Or maybe they even gave someone a standing ovation. If I may, let me speak on behalf of churches everywhere, that if they had the heart of Christ, they would say this to you, I'm so sorry we minimized your trauma. I'm so sorry we failed to protect you. This was not your fault. This was his fault. You didn't do anything to deserve this. Please do not carry your story in silence. It is too much for you to bear, and you don't have to. You shouldn't have to. And if you need a place to share the weight of this, I want you to reach out to Pulpit Rock. We're going to do better, and we'll share some resources at the end of this, a way to do that. Another way we follow Jesus in this, we mentioned this last week, I just want to touch on it again, but we must bring more women into leadership and conversation. Now, we talked about that last Sunday. Let me tell you again why this is crucial. History shows that when men have dominated societies, they are considered the norm, and women are the deviant of the norm. And a male-centric understanding of the universe is unbiblical and dangerous. We need women to lead and speak into the important issues in the church that men cannot relate to. I'll tell you what, the best thing that's happened to me the last few weeks is my sermons the last two Sundays have been scoured over and heavily influenced by women who are helping me in this. Say this, hear this, here's how this sounds. Next week we're going to listen as Deb Hirsch is a guest with us and she's going to lead us in this conversation. I'm proud of Pulpit Rock, a church that for decades has been finding ways to include and elevate more women's voices in leadership from the front, from behind, in meetings, in charts. But hear this, with hashtag MeToo, 
all too often becoming hashtag church to, it is more important than ever that women are represented in making decisions and leadership on behalf of the community. We need your voice. One last thing. Not the last thing. It's the last thing for today. How do we follow Jesus into this? We must offer Jesus. We must offer Jesus. In John chapter 8, a group of men catch a couple in the act of sexual sin and in an all-too-common example of what happens when men in power abuse that power, they brought who? The man. I mean, the woman, not the man. They threw this woman down at the feet of Jesus, hoping for her to be harmed further. Jesus Christ did not become her judge. He becomes her protector. He did not speak against her. He spoke for her in front of a crowd of men looking to harm her. This is our Jesus, the man who always took the side of the voiceless, the marginalized, the oppressed, and the abused. Jesus always sides with the truth, no matter who is telling the truth, because he is the truth. Jesus always sides with truth, no matter who is telling the truth, because he is the truth. And to follow him, it means we must walk as he did. And so our church may not be able to offer everything, but we can offer Jesus. And Jesus is the one who can truly say, in a way no one else can, me too. When we are victims of the evil of others, he can say to us, me too. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. When we have suffered in silence, Jesus can say to us, me too. When he was insulted, he didn't insult in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but gave himself up to the one who judges justly. The hardest part of this is what I'm going to say next. And even for those of us who've been the sinner, the assaulter, the abuser, even for those of us and some of us in this room who may be feeling the weight of past actions that we are now seeing for the sin that they were, even to us, Jesus can say, me too. The Messiah did not know sin, but God made him to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might embody God's faithfulness to the covenant. I want you to hear this today. There is a path to healing that's open even to those who did the hurting. It is a hard path. It involves confession. It involves repentance. It may include loss. It may include consequence. I'm not excusing any behavior. I'm calling us to see people the way Jesus does, a Jesus who experienced suffering and shame for our sake, a Jesus who became sin for our sake, a Jesus who believed there was no one past his reach. And so we have to be a place that continues to offer Jesus the man of hope and healing. Great men and women of God, today I... I, I I want you to hear my heart on this. I'm not here to berate us as a church. I, I think this is one of the most powerful communities. And we've done good jobs in the past. We can do better. We will do better. We talk about sexual harm. We change what we tolerate and how we treat women. We listen and believe people's stories. We bring more women into leadership and conversation. And we must offer Jesus to that end, I've asked to close this message today by having some friends read a psalm of lament over us in honor of those who've experienced sexual harm and to acknowledge that God sees your suffering. 
May God's words of pain and lament and hope open the door for you today. After they read this, we'll have a song and time of worship. And I want to just share how this will go. It may be today that some things have been stirred up or prompted in you. It may be that you feel the need to share something with someone. Maybe you would like to pray for somebody you know that's in pain right now. Maybe you'd like to pray, have prayer for yourself right now. Maybe you just need someone to talk to. We're going to give you some space during the next few minutes, during this reading and during this song. And we're going to have some people in the back of the room wearing some blue badges. These are our prayer team. They'd love to talk with you. We're also going to have a room, room 101, which is right through this door, and you just keep going left all the way around. In room 101, there'll be some ladies there willing to pray and listen and share. But our God is a God who welcomes our lament and our cry. So I invite you to stand with me together and prepare our hearts to hear God's words of lament and hope. Listen to my prayer, O oh God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. My thoughts trouble me, and I am distraught because of what my enemy is saying, because of the threats of the wicked, for they bring down suffering on me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen on me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. Lord, confuse the wicked. Confound their words. For I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they prowl about on its walls. Malice and abuse are within it. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it is you. A man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship. As for me, I call to God, and the Lord Jesus saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and God hears my voice. My companion attacks his friends. He violates his covenant. His talk is smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. His words are as soothing, are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken, but you, God, will bring down the wicked into the pit of decay. The bloodthirsty and deceitful will not live out half their days. But as for me, I trust in you. <laughs> 